Hello, everyone. This is Brendan from the Unchefed podcast. Each week on Unchefed, we unpack a topic regarding the politics and history of our plates in the hope of becoming better eaters. That's Unchefed, available now on your preferred podcast network. Try to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Huh? What do I do with the car? You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> the Cult Worthy Classic. A cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult classics made before 1970. Your host, Antonio Palacios, will guide you weekly through a sea of hidden gems and obscure films that are destined for rediscovery. And so, without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Cult Worthy Classic. My name is Antonio, and this is a very special episode I've got my friend Mikey Jones back on the show as he is one of our most recurring guests. Mikey, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Kind of had a, a weird throat thing happening, so I, I sound a little uh, little hoarse, like I've been screaming at people, but... I like it. I think you sound like Kathleen Turner. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> You're like, I don't know how to take that. Yeah, he's been asking me to say certain things to him that didn't make <laughs> a lot of sense. Like, he just calls me up like, hey, can you just kind of whisper this to me, please? And I'll be like, yeah... Why? Why? Can you <laughs> Why just, not? Can okay. you quote me lines from Who Framed Roger Rabbit in that sultry voice of yours? <laughs> <laughs> like I said, we got a special episode today. We're doing something a little bit different. We're doing a double feature, but not like the beach double feature we did on the Cult Worthy podcast. This one is a little bit more themed and relevant on a technical aspect, which is more Mikey's. And that's why I have him on the show today, because I want to know more about about it. We watched these films as a double feature not too long ago. I had heard of them. I had seen one and its remake, but the other one I had never seen and was actually really impressed by it. And this is something we've been talking about doing for a while and today's the day. So we are going to be talking about Michael Curtiz as a director of these two very important films when it comes to cinematic technology. Mikey, what is the importance and relevance of these two films today? Well, uh, they are early Technicolor films. <clears throat> they were filmed in the last uh, two-strip Technicolor process that uh, Dr. Herbert Kalmus had created. He was the founder of Technicolor. So explain two-strip, three-strip to our listeners. So uh, Technicolor was a company that was founded by a man named Dr. Herbert Kalmus, the tech in the company's name was inspired by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology um, and then color, obviously. So Technicolor, that's how that came about. Um, he received his degree there in 1904. In 1916, he made a film called The Gulf Between, which basically used a prism splitter and it used colored filters in front of the film. So it wasn't dye transfer like what he created later, but he, he tweaked the process and a little bit later on in 1922, he used two strip Technicolor, uh, a, that was process number two, and created a film starring Anna Mae Wong called Toll of the Sea, which is actually still around. It's, it's still in its original te Technicolor print, so you can still see that. I think there was a National Archives like Treasures from the Archives uh, disc set that came out, and it's available on that. It's probably available on some streaming services, but it's essentially the story of Madame Butterfly. Oh, okay. I didn't know that, but that makes a lot of sense since it's Anna Wei Wong. Yeah. Now, we've talked about like lost films before, mostly silent films. Like There's such a large majority of films that have just been lost at time, shot on nitrate, dissolves, not taken care of. Are there lost Technicolor films? Uh, absolutely. There's, there's a lot of lost oh Technicolor God. films. And, and the reason for that is that um, partially they, they just fell victim to everything else. You know, the same, the same story you hear with any, any film pre-1950s uh, that wasn't shot on safety film or on, uh, it was also shot on nitrate. So they kind of went that way. <clears throat> but uh, Technicolor also when they created new processes for the films, at one point they developed the three strip Technicolor, mm -hmm. which is the process that Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, all those, you know, 
giants as far as uh, cinemas, cinema goes. Um, they were filmed in three-strip Technicolor. <clears throat> so all the equipment was transferred over to handle three-strip Technicolor films. So at one point, they, they announced a last call for the films uh, to have new prints struck. And after that, um, they Technicolor destroyed. Technicolor discarded most of their two-strip color negatives on December 28th, 1948. And they had released a final call to have print struck from them. And essentially it was old technology. The idea was, you know, who's going to want to see this? These are, these are outdated films, outdated process. So, I mean, you're, you're seeing a lot of that right now. What with the advent of digital projectors, you know, cause now it seems like only art house and boutique theaters will still project 35 millimeter and they have these films archived and taken care of, or they're from someone's private collection because now everybody's just doing digital projection. And there is such a difference in visuals of the saturations of colors from 35 millimeter to digital. It it blows my mind that films were just like lost in time because, you know, if you look around my shelves, I'm like, well, these films are here forever in whatever format that they're in. But they didn't have that back then. It's like, literally, if you don't get your film to this place to be restruck, it's gone. Yeah, and and um, film preservation, it's, it's interesting because I was, I was talking to someone about this when I was telling them that I was interested in film preservation. They made the comment that they had just read, and this was like 15, 20 years ago. <laughs> they had read, read that Gone with the Wind had just been preserved again. And they're like, well, it's so great that film's going to be on around forever. And I was like, yeah, well, not because of this preservation. I mean, this, this preservation helps, but preservation is an ongoing thing. They have to keep revisiting it. I mean, they can put the films in, in, you know, ideal circumstances to be, to be stored and they can strike new, new negatives off things, but you know, to keep the original source material, especially for like Gone with the Wind, which was film, which was nitrate based. Yeah. They, they have to, it's kind of an ongoing process. They kind of have to keep looking at it, making sure that it's, it's doing okay. And, um, it's like a sourdough starter, but for films, yeah, kind of, huh? <laughs> you got to feed it, you got to yeah. water it, keep yeah. it in a certain temperature. Yeah. That's fascinating. And like, I've always kind of known about that process, but n- not the idea that these films were, were lost. Now, when we were watching these films, you were explaining to me that there are actually two versions of Dr. X. There was a Technicolor version, but then they shot a safety version in black and white. What was the reasoning behind that? Um, Essentially, uh, there was, they wanted to give the option to, to theaters, I think, to be able to show the color of black and white. Up to a certain point, Technicolor prints were double thick prints because they literally had the two layers of film. It was two pieces of film glued together for, you know, to combine the colors so that they could project it to get the color spectrum that they had, the, the partial color spectrum. So theaters had a hard time doing doing the double thick prints. I think by the time House of Wax and Dr. X came out, they had perfected it enough so that they could transfer it onto a single piece of film. But they shot the black and white version side by side or different takes than the color version just because they they wanted to have a backup of that, um, there was a little bit of uh, apathy towards color that was happening at the time by the general public. Just because it was seen as a gimmick, black and white cinema was respected. It was considered, you know, it was the standard. <clears throat> so the color that they were producing looked kind of avant garde. Mm-hmm. So if they were trying to tell like a drama or a romance story, telling in Technicolor it didn't go over as well because the colors looked artificial. They didn't look like true color. Right. Um, you know, three strip Technicolor was a different story because that had the full color spectrum and it looks, it looks very artistic, but it also looks more realistic than the colors did in the, in the other film. So if you look at Technicolor's catalog, um, there were some, some dramas and romances made, of course, you know, they're all, they're always going to be in different, different film format styles that come out. But a lot of the films, if you look at them, were adventure films or, you know, kind of 
segments of films, like the party scene in, in Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. And the, the Lon Chaney uh, version of Phantom of the Opera was done in Technicolor. And then Ten Commandments had some Technicolor aspects. And so what was different and new about the, the process that they filmed um, Dr. X and Mystery of the Wax Museum in <clears throat> was that they had, in a, it, was, it was process number three, and it removed grain. So if you watch um, King of Kings, the Cecil B. DeMille film that came out in the late 20s, that was filmed in, a, in the, the second process. Mm-hmm. And it's very grainy. Like, it almost looks like if you're shooting with, like, like 3200 ISO film. You know, for, for photographers out there that know that, you know, like, the, the, the higher up, you know, the more the ISO is, you know, the more sensitive you make it, then the, the grainier the image is going to be. And it, it looks really good. Um, Criterion Collection did an amazing, amazing DVD presentation of King of Kings with a couple of different versions and more Technicolor sequences um, than the theatrical release actually had for the, the premiere. For the premiere version, they had some more sequences in Technicolor than what they did for the theatrical release. But it it looks great. It's just really grainy. Yeah. In contrast to the to the black and white segments of the film, and so they had created a process that looks more clear and more crisp but essentially it was just a uh, little little gimmicky and the public kind of were were losing there it was like okay yeah we've seen that it was like you know when when a dog walks on its hind legs it's cute at first and then after a while you're like yeah we've seen that well and that's one of the things that we can talk about with this film is that the scenes that are shot on sets where they are controlling the light you can definitely see that there is a vast superiority of the quality of the film, the quality of the visuals, than in the scenes like when they are on the beach with natural lighting. That's where it seems a little bit fuzzy, a little bit grainy. So, it, like anything, it's scientific. You know, you, you've got your your director of photography, you've got your guy testing the light, knowing how to operate with Technicolor. It, it was interesting when I watched both these films with you, is because the first thing that you notice as you're watching these films that are technically in color. It's a lot of hues of greens. Like, there's a lot of greens. And I remember when Martin Scorsese did The Aviator, he did a two-strip color, Technicolor process for some of the scenes early on during the era where Technicolor would have been relevant. Right. And then as it goes into, like, the 30s and 40s, he goes into three-strip. Mm-hmm. And then when he gets to, like, the 50s, he goes just to normal you know, just normal film colors that we're seeing today. But when you watch those earlier scenes, specifically the golf course scene with Kate Blanchett and Leonardo DiCaprio as uh, Howard Hughes and Catherine Hepburn is very green saturated. And that yeah. is kind of what the two strip in these two films reminded me of. Yeah. And, and what's interesting with the aviators, I was actually reading about this. Um, Scorsese actually wanted to rent the Technicolor camera. So the way that you filmed a Technicolor film back in those days was your the movie, it was a deal with Technicolor. Mm. Two, two studios. So it was, if it was MGM, it was MGM and Technicolor. So Technicolor had control of the cameras. It was their cameramen, their operators. So they had all the control as far as that goes. So Scorsese, when he wanted to do, he actually wanted to film with Technicolor cameras and use film stock, like do it the way they did it back then in two strip for the time period that aligned with, and then three strip. And he was told, no, (laughs) they wouldn't let him do it. And so instead, you know, he put, he put the, and I use this term with the utmost respect and affection. He put the geeks to work and they came up with a digital solution that yeah. looks great. Yeah, that it film. does. It does. And the nice thing is they can use that in 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 a way in some of the restoration efforts in Technicolor films to try to help recreate lost sequences or t- sequences with lost Technicolor. Well, yeah. So I forget, was it Kino Lorber or Warner Brothers Archive that you had the, the Blu-rays of? It's Warner Brothers Archives. So I watched this on YouTube, like whatever print from like the 80s, what would have been a VHS rip or maybe an original DVD rip. And it looks like dog shit. It's terrible. And then when we saw your Warner Brothers archive Blu-ray, vibrant and clear as if it was the day it was born. Now, what is that restoration process? How do they get 
the restoration because as, as much as I know about movies, I know very little about restoration, especially when it comes to two strip Technicolor films. Well, um, it's a great question. And um, what they do is if they have, I know that if they have the, the, the film elements that have the, the two separate strips of film, you know, they, they scan them, it gets cleaned, and then they can digitally line everything up exactly where it should be. Because, you know, you're overlaying two different colors of pieces of film. Mm. And so digitally, they can put that back. So, like, Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind look phenomenal now because they have they have those materials. And when they are scanning those, digitally, it lines everything up exactly where it should be. So they've actually said you get a level of clarity that they didn't even see back in 1939 when those films were released. You know, we're, we're seeing them, them like the best possible versions of them. But with House of Wax and Dr. X, they had found some of the, the prints of the films in, um, in Jack Warner's private collection. When he died, they found them. After his death in, uh, in 1978, I think he died September 9th, so that anniversary is coming up. They had them in his personal collection, and they copied one of them to Safety Film, this is this is um, Doctor X. Mm-hmm. They copied it to Safety Film, and it was actually a, a pretty intact, pretty intact, complete version of the film. Um, and and it, the color had had maintained pretty well. And Technicolor's notorious for that. Since it's a dye, the the prints don't really fade. You just have to watch out for the same problems you have with you know film on nitrate based stock, which is you know buckling and, and deterioration and, and and all that stuff. So. They did a really great digital restoration where they basically just um, went in, you know, they repair, tears, damage, things like that, um, and just make, you know, clean it up. Just do digital work on it to clean it up. Dr. X was in, in better condition than the mystery of House of Wax. So let's just talk about these movies now because it's a great double feature. And one of the things I love about these movies is that they're short in running time. Like, you can watch these two movies back-to-back, and it's pretty much the length of a modern-day Marvel movie. Yeah. But they're also pre-code, and we've talked about pre-code before on this podcast with Freaks and a few of the other films that have come up. And Dr. X being written back in 1928 and shot in 1932. I'll agree to lay off for 48 hours, but I give you my word, if you don't succeed, I'll come in here, seal every door, Place everybody under technical arrest, take fingerprints, conduct a rigid inspection. I don't care if the whole world knows it. There have been six murders committed all in the same circumstances. The evidence points here. Another one! If you only knew the things that have happened. Are you worried about your father? Yes, I am. Terribly. Oh, the only thing I'm concerned about is your safety. Say, what's the matter with you? What's the matter with me? Nothing at all. Only all last night I lay down with a bunch of stiffs. Look, a lot of goofy guys, let a dame poke a gun in my stomach, and then I take a trick cigar from a dumb policeman. It is my theory that one of us in the past, from dire necessity, was driven to cannibalism. The memory of that act was hammered like a nail into the mind of that man. Shrewd and brilliant. He could conceal his madness from the human eye, even from himself, but he can't conceal it from the eyes of the radio sensitivity. Explores a lot of topics that definitely must have seemed taboo back then. You know, we talked about it with freaks, but you've got a killer who kills during the full moon and cannibalizes. I mean, we're, we, we're talking about essentially a serial killer and human cannibalism before zombie films before schlock films of the 50s we're seeing it in this early example that has a really impressive cast and a very impressive director being michael curtis yeah he uh he he was pretty notorious uh we've me and you have talked about um his film noah's ark yeah it was filmed in the late 20s and that, that was notorious because he wanted realism as, as much as possible. And so in, in the Hollywood uh, celebration of the silent film, um, they interview the lead actress in that film. 
and she talks about how during the flood scene, he put live people in front of a breakaway wall mm-hmm. and dummies in front of the wall that was staying and um, like hundreds of extras. And she said that she found one man leaning against her dressing room door and he was all bandaged up and looked like he'd been beaten to a pulp. And she asked him if he was okay. And he said, I'm better off than most. So I'm taking the next round of, of ambulances <laughs> to the hospital. But, um, you know, he was also like throwing like logs into the, into the thing and it was hitting people. And I think like one or two people were killed on the set of that film. And, and that, that's, it didn't get cut and reshot. It, it made it into the film. Yeah. Why and, would you cut it and reshoot it? Yeah, <laughs> when it, it looks so realistic, you know, but, oh my God. um, so he, he was notorious in his own right, but, um, Quickly going back to the question you had asked with um, the black and white version, yeah. Dr. X, Warner Brothers in part did that because, like I had said, Technicolor owned it. So if they wanted new prints of the film, they had to pay Technicolor to do that. Mm. So having an alternate black and white version... That was theirs. That was theirs. They could strike them as many prints as they want, and if the if the color version failed to perform well, then they could just you know shoot out the black and white version. Now with the next film, Mystery of the Wax Museum, Technicolor made sure that they the black that. and white version did not happen of that film mm. because they didn't want the competition. With the director and the cast, I mean, the film did really well. It, it was it was a huge hit, and being that it was from the the pre code era, I, I think we've talked about what that means. That just means that there wasn't there there was still a production code in place. The, the Hayes Code from the twenties, which was self basically self uh, installed, self installed, yeah, yeah, by the by the studios because they became worried that with all these scandals happening, like you had Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks divorcing their spouses and then marrying within 24 hours of their divorces being finalized, pretty much telling the world we were having an affair. Yeah. And then you had the, the rape and murder trial of Virginia Rappi mm-hmm. uh, by, by very, very famous comedian, Fatty Arbuckle, Arbuckle, which he didn't do. He, yeah. he, he was, that, that was a, a great example of media taking off with a story and making things up and it destroyed his career and, and then uh, the the unsolved murder of uh, William Desmond Taylor, mm-hmm. famous director, and that's that's an instance where the studios were using that crime to implement actresses that they wanted out of their contracts, and they all have morality clauses. So all they had to do was plant some letters or some underwear, and then it was, hey, we found this. He was having an affair with a fifteen-year-old actress, which he wasn't. He was gay. Yeah. But uh, all these scandals just built up. To this decency and, you know, the Catholic League of Decency, I think, was was uh, saying boycott the movies and you had women's groups. Yeah, the, the conservative movements of those days were very different than they are now. Yeah. Uh, because, again, you were dealing with a new technology. It's almost the same way that, like, people look at cell phones and pornography, you know, the who can control the children's access to these films? Who can control the children's access to this new technology? They've yeah. got a nickel. They're going to go see a movie. And, you know, with this one, I mean, it, it, it's harmless now. But if you think about the things that it approaches for 1932. So you've got Fay Ray pre-King Kong. This is a year or two before King Kong. Well, she had just filmed it. I think it had been filmed. It was just being... In post-production. Yeah. The interesting about this one is that it has a lot of very interesting uh it has a lot of interesting tropes to it in the way that we look at psychological profiling of serial killers now it's kind of like a precursor to that so dr xavier is called for his medical opinion on these cannibalistic murders that have been happening around the city along the riverfront the idea is that he thinks he might know who the killer is. He believes it's one of his colleagues. And he tells the police that he has a system that he's developed that kind of uses technology to control the heart rate of the people being interrogated that'll kind of let them know if they're lying or not. It's essentially an emotional lie detector test, which reminds me of the Voight-Kampf machine in Blade Runner. The yeah. first time I watched this, I'm like, oh, this is like a precursor to the Voight-Kampf machine of seeing if someone is a replicant or not. Reminds us that there's really 
no new ideas in film, just people reinventing things. Yeah, and it's done excellently. And But the thing that is interesting about this one is the perversions that are explored within these individuals. So one of his colleagues named Haynes, he is a full-on sexual pervert and voyeurist. You see the 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 porn magazine on his. On you his see table. the porn magazine on his table, and the police see it. And there there's a scene where he's taking the police around to meet all of his staff at this medical school, and they see the porn magazine on there. And he's like, "Oh, I was I was just doing doing something else. I was just you know you know looking at my my a bird book. I think maybe." Don't quote me on that. And then, like, they they lift up this this towel and they see the the porn magazine. They kind of just do a wink and a nod, which are like, oh, bird magazine, huh? <laughs> now, another thing about this film is when you watch the location of his his hospital, his residence, where all these tests are taking place along the seaside. Did you see the film *Malignant* by James Wan? I did not catch that one, no. Oh, my God. I mean, it, it's a crazy film that came out a couple of years ago. It had all sorts of different opinions on it, but there is a mental hospital in the film where the malignant character is first discovered, oh, and it is essentially the same structure. It's like this weird, almost like Art Deco, neo-noir structure along the seaside. Again, paying homage to where all these ideas really came from back in the thirties with this film, Dr. X. I love seeing that in movies. I know sometimes people get mad. Like that was used in whatever movie is like, no, 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 no. That, that means it. It means they like it. It means means they're a fan. It's relevant. Yes. Now this movie, I wouldn't really call it as much a horror film as I would call it a psychological thriller. Yeah. Horror elements. Yeah. It's like, both of them are kind of like, uh, somewhat comedic hard-boiled dick films because you have this this uh newspaper man and i hate that guy <laughs> <laughs> and he, he's kind of the the wise cracking reporter who's just trying to get his story and uh you know lying when he needs to to get in and i didn't mean anything by it i just got to get my story dame you know kind of one of those types and uh um you know, you 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 either are really entertained by this guy and think he's funny, or you're just kind of hoping he's the next victim. He's one of those characters. I mean, and I get it. It's it's the character that the audience has to have some kind of innocence or some kind of lighter character to bond with as they go through this rather disturbing journey. Because you really can't attach yourself thematically to a character without it being disturbing. Faye Ray and this reporter played by Lee Tracy, who plays Lee Taylor of the Daily World, they're like the the kind of softer, innocent people that you can like relate to as a theater goer, as a movie watcher, because everyone else in this film is just disturbing as hell. Yeah, and he he kind of almost is a a shaggy type of character, like from Scooby Doo, you know, <laughs> because he's he's he kind of does like there's a scene where. He something happens and he's like visibly trembling and it's almost like hey, you can just see him trembling. It reminded me of like Shaggy from Scooby Doo and he's like g- 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 ghosts. Almost like a Abbott and Costello moment where yeah. he's like stuttering and like shaking to himself. Yeah. So yeah, the film isn't perfect, but there is a lot to it. And you know, you have to just go ahead and give credit to this film. There are a lot of elements that you see explored in Rocky Horror Picture Show. There, there are homages. They talk about Dr. X in science fiction double feature in the opening song. You've got uh, Magenta and Riff Raff, who are kind of like based on the housekeepers of this film. There's, there's a lot to it. And for people who want to know more about what you know, they were talking about, Richard O'Brien was talking about when he was writing the music and writing that film, go back and watch this film. There's a lot of it in there. I mean, even the laboratory scene with all the crazy lights and gadgets and stuff like that, very much similar to what Frankenfurter is doing in his laboratory. <laughs> of, of the two films, this is not my favorite, but it is fascinating as like an early piece of cinema, not only technologically with Technicolor, but just with the subject matter, cannibalism, yeah. serial killers, profiling it's very very interesting to see it done that early yeah and it, they they were really i'll say mature plot lines for their for their time and it was just basically after after the sound era, era came in the production code wasn't like didn't really have anything in it for sound so a lot of studios just it wasn't being enforced it was it was technically still there they were still kind of tried not to go too far with things but then like there's like the movie 3 on a match 
uh, one of the the that was a pre code film, a drama, and you see one of the the women is is in bed and she sits up and she's just in her negligee. She may as well just be topless. Yeah, you, you see, see right through right it. Through it. Yeah, it yeah. Works. You you've been really getting me fascinated on this subject, and right now on the streaming app Kino Cult, they have a genre segment of old exploitation films from like the 1930s and 40s, like how to take a bath and, you know, the, the animals of sex, like just all these different things, these little 15, 20 minute exploitation shorts from the 1930s that are just fascinating. I mean, they're tame by today's standards, but you're like, Oh wow. Now talking about the other film, which I'm assuming was filmed back to back with Dr. X. Cause they came out like a year apart. Uh, no, they weren't back to back. They were they were separate films. It was basically first film. Doctor X did so well. They went ahead and did this one. They it did so well that they did. Uh, they followed it up with the mystery of the House of Wax or the mystery of the Wax Museum. I kind of say that interchangeably, but I know that's uh... exquisite, almost as beautiful as the original. Someday I hope to have restore Marie Antoinette. What's the matter, sir? Nothing at all, my boy. I should like to meet your friend. Why, certainly, sir. You will always be beautiful. Think, my child. In a thousand years, you will be as lovely as you are now. Come. No, no. Come. Let me go. Let me go. Let me go. Don't be afraid, my dear. In a few minutes, the container will have filled with wax. And when it overflows, your beauty will be preserved forever. Mystery of the Wax Museum, again, Mystery of the Wax Museum, Michael Curtiz, 1933, and you've got Fay Ray again, so obviously oh, this... You, you don't just have Fay Ray again. You have... Lionel me, Atwell again. <laughs> yeah, you have Lionel Atwell again, um, used almost the same cast and crew as Dr. X. And that's why I was asking if it was yeah. back-to-back, because it's like so many same faces. It basically kind of seemed like a, well, it worked well this time. There were also actors that were deemed just like with the sound air. When that came in, they said, oh, this actor has a good voice for the movies. Okay. There were some actors and actresses that were deemed that deemed to photograph better in color. Mm. And so Faye Ray was noted to be somebody who photographed well in color. Lionel Atwell. I, I know if you, if you look like Esther Williams was, was, uh, you know, a little later in film history, did a lot of like the uh, backstage musicals with the intricate swimming scenes, and uh, they dubbed her the girl for whom Technicolor was made. Mm. So they they really did publicity on that. But um, yeah, um, Arthur Edmund Crow and Thomas Jackson, director Michael Curtiz. Now this one, this one plays a little bit more straightforward, and it's less. It is less, I'd say, controversial in its subject matter as Doctor X. This one is more of a straightforward thriller, yeah. but again, it deals with obsession. It deals with um, dangerous obsession. Yeah. So Ivan Igor, he is like this sculptor. He has a museum in London, but because he's falling behind, the guy comes to collect. They get in a tussle, and the place burns down. Yeah. Um, he they basically his his museum isn't doing as well as the one next door because everybody wants the macabre. They want the serial killers, but he, he doesn't want to do that. You know, he, yeah, he's he doing wants, Joan of Arc. He's doing Marie yeah, Antoinette who's his favorite. He was a sculptor and he realized that with wax, he could create more life, you know, put more life and, and beauty into it. And it's interesting to note that because they needed such hot, bright lights to film these Technicolor films, Esther Williams once said, that she has to wear dark glasses. Like she said, her eyes were permanently damaged working on Technicolor films because the lights were so bright and she was in so many Many of them. And so they had to use such bright, hot lights that the, any wax figurine on the set would melt and start to disfigure. So many of the wax sculptures that you see in the film are actually people. Yeah. You notice that because you actually see some move. Yeah. You actually see the move. And some of the scenes. We well, talked about that. And they, they had to do that with Faye Ray's character because she, of course, looks exactly, exactly like, like Marie Antoinette. Antoinette. Yeah. 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 So after the place burns down, he goes to New York. This is like a decade later and yeah. opens a new museum in New York. And again, we've got this quick, fast-talking newspaper gal this time. Yeah. Not a guy. 
it's interesting that there's so many stories that just follow along like with a reporter or a journalist in those days. And the whole uh, concept of this now is that these beautiful young women are disappearing and being kidnapped off the street. And they're investigating this. Yeah. And as they are going into this museum, they're starting to recognize that some of these girls who are supposedly wax figures look like these missing women. Yeah. And, and as we, as we learn in film, the death of a beautiful model, beautiful female model is the worst and most tragic death of any kind ever anywhere. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So yeah, this, this model has uh, she overdoses or something on new year's Eve. Yeah. And then her body goes missing from the morgue. And so we are introduced to the female news reporter and her roommate who is Faye Ray. Yeah. Faye Ray's roommate. I'm sorry. Faye Ray's fiance works for the wax museum. He's like an intern apprentice right, sculptor. He can't use his hands anymore. The, right. uh, the the original the original guy Lionel Atwell's character. He's in a wheelchair, and he said that he's just due to the fire. He's disfigured, and he can't he can't sculpt the way he did. So he basically just has to oversee everything. And Fay Ray's fiance is the one who was one of the guys that does this. He also has some other men on his employ. One is a drug addict yeah. which is kind of a pre-code element mm-hmm. he, he's he's identified as a drug addict i think like they question him at one point and they have him going through withdrawals <laughs> um while they're while they're questioning him and then another one is a deaf mute and that's the role that charles bronson played in the vincent price remake yeah <laughs> <laughs> which I, I like both those versions but yeah so i had never seen this version until you showed it to me i was only familiar with the vincent price one and it's amazing how how actually loyal that version is to this one. Oh yeah. But at the end of the day, man, this one to me is more impressive with how they pull off some of the amazing special effects, the amazing camera work, especially in this two-strip Technicolor process. It is hard for a film this old to intrigue me and to keep me in suspense. And this film does it. Like the whole third act, which is essentially a cat and mouse between Faye Ray and Lionel Atwell's character as he's about to turn her into a wax figure and all the action that's going on. With such a short runtime for this film, it, it, it's a masterclass where Dr. X to me feels like this is where they were kind of getting their feet wet with this technical process, mm-hmm. learning how to make it function in a story, in a narrative. This film to me is the one that's like, all right, we know how to do this now and and this is how you do it. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting with this film um, they had a little bit more work to do with the preservation on this film because I, I guess the, the print that they got out of Jack Warner's private collection when, after he passed was not come, it was, it was just damaged Mm -hmm. and there were some other copies of the film that just weren't as complete or they had color issues. They struck a couple of different negatives um, around the time they found it that were not great quality. They weren't very good. Uh, Turner Classic Movies, when they got it, they struck a new negative of it that was a little bit better. And when they strike, they strike a negative off the print. So they're basically kind of freezing time in a way. Yeah. They're they're basically saying, okay, yeah, this is a flawed print, but we strike a new print of it and we are making a document of where it is at this point in history. So this new print is going to age differently and it's on safety film. So it's not going to have the same problems continuing that, that marred this original, original document of the film, let's call it. So um, they were actually able to do some really great work. They combined different film elements, but because the color was a little bit different between the prints, it, it looked a little off, but the art director had kept, had done an oral history at one point talking about the film talking about what he was trying to achieve with the color and what he did and how he did it. And they were able to go back and use that to guide them through the preservation to recreate the original vision that the art director had for the film. And it looks, it looks beautiful. I mean, they, they did such a good job with it. It's crisp, it's clear. And they were able to just seamlessly, um, you know, tie in some of these other elements that didn't quite match um, digitally, but, they were still able to do it and it looks great. And uh, I know that one thing that uh, the public kind of had a problem with on the film was that it, it just kind of ended. Kind of, kind of doesn't have like the, 
uh, denouement that... Uh... Yeah, you're right. But it's okay because like I feel that was an artistic choice. You see a lot of films do that artistically these days. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the Sopranos finale where it's like, okay, cut to black, you know? Yeah. It's a choice, and I enjoy this film. I really do like it, and like the influences too. I mean, so you and I have watched a lot of Michael Curtiz films together, intentionally and unintentionally. Like sometimes we just grab a film, and like, oh, that's a Michael Curtiz film we haven't watched. He was a huge director. He he directed Casablanca. Like Casablanca, and then we we watched uh, Flamingo Road together with Joan Crawford. We watched King Creole with Elvis Presley, directed by Michael Curtiz. Like. Yeah. That guy was just a powerhouse for oh, yeah. decades. And it's technically, the films are really interesting. You brought this up. I didn't notice it. I didn't notice it at the time, which to me is, is a testament just how well the films work. Mm-hmm. But there's almost no music, music. in these films mm-hmm. save the opening credits. Yeah, he, he, he really relies on... If he's going to use music, he's going to use it in a moment. Maybe Casablanca might be the most amount of music. King Creole, you've got music during Elvis Presley's moments of singing. But apart from that, you're really focusing on the sound of the room, the room tone, the sound of the characters, the footsteps approaching. Like He was working more than just visually. He was working in a very audibly sensitive level. And I I think, that again, just building that guy's mastercraft. Right. And, and this was also a point in time where, you know, sound was still pretty new. I mean, it had only been since like 1928. Uh, they were, they were really doing sound and even, even that, you know, they were still, I think kind of, kind of trying to test what works with sound and what doesn't work. And, and it's, it's fascinating to watch this and realize, okay, this is an instance where it kind of, it kind of does work. Now, like influentially, it's funny. Cause like, you know, this is the first, one of the first technicolor, films based on this house of wax story you for christmas bought me the arrow video release of mill of the stone women which was the very first italian horror film in color and it is a take on the wax museum except it takes place in an italian village in the middle of nowhere but i I think that's an interesting connection they're like okay we're going to pay homage to this very first color horror film you could say by doing our first italian one based on this story of, of the Wax Museum. Yeah. So, yeah, man, very fascinating films, very fascinating filmmaker, and as a double feature, like, that's how you told me, like, we need to watch this back-to-back, because that's how it works best. You're right. watching these two last-of-the-two-strip films, horror films, proto-horror, proto-psychological thriller, pre-code. There's just so many groundbreaking moments for both of these films and you're watching them together with the same cast with the same crew of filmmakers and technicians it really is kind of like a history lesson in an afternoon one of the things that was that's really cool about these two films is that dr kalmus actually said the the art direction the set design the stories were the perfect components mm. for the two-strip Technicolor process. And uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum was the last studio feature filmed using this two-strip Technicolor process. After this, the three-strip Technicolor took over. Filmgoers and theater owners declared the films to be the most beautiful Technicolor films they had ever seen. Yeah, I, I, I can only imagine what this would have felt like in a theater back in those days, seeing something like this for the first time, this kind of story and this kind of spectacle. And it's, it's just, yeah, I mean, it is a a fitting, a fitting end, you know, as, as Dr. Kalma said, I mean, this is, this is the ultimate, the best way to go for these, for this process to go out uh, was on these two films. Um, There was a, it was a three deal contract, three film deal contract. And there was a, another movie that was made. It was a a comedy drama, I think. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was made just before that, but I don't. I don't think that that one has. Uh, I don't think that that one's around anymore. So, man, what do you think the next step in cinema is? You know, like we we've spent the last, let's say, fifty years with our cinemascope and our seventy millimeter, our thirty-five millimeter blowups. We've got our digital production now. We've got IMAX. We've got XD, HD, all these different things. What do you think the next step is? What do you think? the next toy is going to come out that's going to either impress us or probably turn us off at first and then mm-hmm. slowly mold us. 
I mean, we're talking about it right now. Like you knew me when I had hundreds of VHS tapes. Now you know me as someone who has hundreds of Blu-rays and DVDs. Like we, we resist at first technology moving forward. And then not only do we accept it, but we embrace it and we become addicted to it. We can't live without it. What do you think is next? Is it, is it smell-o-vision? Is it, obviously 3D is, is, is come and go, hit and miss. Is it an immersive experience, like a, like a virtual reality or augmented reality? Like, what do you think the next thing is? Well, it's interesting that you say that or ask that just because with, like, color didn't really start taking off until the 50s. And in the 50s, that's when you start seeing all these new innovations coming through, like uh, um, CinemaScope, widescreen, yeah. and, you know, different different uh, studios kind of creating their own color formats. Um, that was all done just because the studios were, at that time, terrified that no one was going to come to the movies anymore. Yeah. So they needed spectacle. They had You had to have an experience you couldn't have at home. And, and now it's really interesting because with streaming, especially during the pandemic, um, you know, at first you had studios that were like really resistant towards home viewing immediately, like making a movie and making it uh, immediately available on a home streaming service. But then during the pandemic, that was pretty much how they stayed afloat. You know, they depended on the fact that people were going to watch movies from home because theaters were closed. Yeah. And so the next big thing, I, I think... I think what we might see is going to come out of a necessity like that, like we did with the pandemic. I mean, now, you know, home streaming is, is a lot more acceptable and theaters are realizing, Oh, Hey, we can make some pretty good money by showing it in theaters. We can do the IMAX thing. We can do this, but then we can also show it in theaters and then make it available through, you know, you can buy it yeah. you know, a shorter amount of time off HBO max or off Apple TV, you know? And I, I, so it's as far as like new, new stuff happening. I don't know. I think that maybe we're just gonna hopefully digital will get better. Not that it's not great now, but um, you know, we maybe just see better presentation of some of these things. I mean, just because like my my little sci-fi brain works this way sometimes, I think we're I think we're gonna see some kind of immersive augmented reality in our storytelling. And it makes me wonder because like, I don't want to be a part of something like interactive. That's a video game. Yeah. I don't want a film to be a video game. I don't want to have to like push a repeatedly or, or hit the X button a bunch of times to make something happen. I want to be entertained. I want to watch a story. I want to feel like I'm a part of it. I want to be in touch with the characters, but maybe there is something down the road where like you put on a goggle and you put on a headset and you are sitting in the living room with Michael Corleone. Yeah. Or you're in the car with Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx and Collateral. I don't know. It's it's something that you know there's going to be a next step. I'm just wondering what that next step is. I think the next step we're going to start seeing a little more is dead actors coming back to life. Because they yeah. can do so much more digitally. Like, look, James Dean has already been cast in another film. Yeah. You know, and I think that's kind of, that's exciting but horrible. Just because is anybody still even alive that actually <laughs> knew him on the level to say what kind of film he would want to do? It's like at that point you're just you know it's like why not why not focus more on 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 current talent and and the, the people who are maybe alive now that could be the next James Dean instead of trying to re resurrect dead actors. I can't remember who said it, but it was actually sad but funny. It was a, a female actress saying great. Now I have to compete with dead guys for roles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, for, for me, like I let the kids and let whoever else wants that technology to have it. I, I'm really going to be like my heels firmly planted in the old ways of stellar storytelling. Yeah. I want to see a film. I want to see it on the big screen preferably, but I also want the comfort of knowing that I have it on my shelf, that I have physical media. You and I are both very big into physical media when it comes to our music, yeah. when it comes to our, our movies and our TV shows because we know how fragile that is with streaming. Yeah. They give you a lot of options, but they're not there forever. They can get purchased by another studio or they can just simply make space on the hard drive for something new. Well, also, I mean, I, I may buy like, you know, the complete metropolis mm -hmm. 
on on Blu-ray and it'll look amazing and it's probably making its way to 4K now. That's probably already in the works. But when I'm on a streaming service, they may not have that version available because there are so many different versions of Metropolis that have been released on on you know digital media in some form throughout the years that I, I've watched some stuff off Apple TV, like older films that I was really excited for. And I was like, this is the worst preservation of this film. This is like the worst possible copy they could get. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like you said, there, there is a comfort knowing I can go home and slip that Blu-ray pristine new yeah. restoration of House of Wax. Or, and it's yours. Yeah, or yeah. Dr. X. Anytime I want, I can take it over to my, my friend's house and not have to go, well, it's on my subscription. Okay, hang on. We're going to have to switch this. So, you know. Yeah. Well, man, this was a lot of fun, like just taking a break from talking about one film, talking about the science, talking about the history, and talking about the people that actually put this stuff together that don't get a lot of appreciation. Like, I, I don't want to sound pretentious, but the general moving going public does not think about where the science came from when they right. go to watch a film. Right, and they, they also don't understand, you know, some of the limitations. And so they'll go, well, why why didn't they do this? Why didn't they just do this? It's like, well, they couldn't. And it's really interesting why they couldn't, and it's interesting how they got around that. Yeah. You know, it's very similar to, like, in the 40s when the production code was being observed more closely. Um, these film noir directors, they'll show, like, this scene where, you know, the, the actor's kissing the woman and he's going down her body, but as he's doing that... The camera's panning. The camera pans away. Face, yeah. No, on her face. <laughs> on her face. And you just see her like moving her head around, and and uh, I, I can't remember which film that's in, but the actor said that after they filmed that, and it came out in the movie, he was approached on the street by someone who said, "What were you doing to her? That is disgusting. How could you do that? What were you doing?" And he's like. Actually, I went and had a cigarette. It was all up to her as soon as I got out of the camera's plane. You know, and it was just, that was was the interesting thing. They had to find a different way to say it and a different way to portray it. And it really, I think, pushed some creativity. Awesome, awesome. Well, I enjoyed this talk about Technicolor and all the advents of technology. I, I think we should, like, jump into these conversations more often. Definitely talk about film noir. Just, you know, all the different tropes. You and I have an obsession with Ida Lapino. Got to talk about her for sure. So yeah, that's a future episode. Well, everyone, thanks for joining us today on this double feature of Technicolor Horror Films by Michael Curtiz. I had a lot of fun. Mikey, thanks for joining me on the show. Everyone, make sure you follow me on Instagram, Letterboxd, Twitter, and Facebook. And be sure to read all of my reviews on thecultworthy.com. We will see you next week. Have a great one.